as we resume our fireside chats, minus the fireside, and I don't chat much, but other than that, similar, I suppose, sitting in this seat. Uh, those of you who may be visiting, I had surgery on November 17th on my right knee, and I am not allowed to put any weight on it. Uh, I haven't been since that time until this Tuesday at 145. So uh, it's been it's been hugely challenging. It's uh, remarkable how much uh, this affects you. I mean, that may be obvious, but when you, you can't drive anymore and uh, you got to get carted around, but it, it has definitely helped me in many respects. More every day, I learn something new about myself. Not all good, obviously, and then some things about others. And it's been great for our marriage in some respects. I think uh, Sherry's been having to cart me around a lot. Now we have different driving practices and philosophies, like many of you husbands and wives do. My wife's a snappy driver, a quicker driver than most of the population, and so when we're driving, and I'm the passenger, I'm not fun to be with, and that's my bad. And so over this time, though, I have to sit, and I have to sit in the back seat. I can't sit in the front. I, my, I leg, my leg won't bend enough to sit in the front seat. So I'm not even a, a pa- you know, what, I'm a backseat driver of all backseat drivers. So I'm sitting there in the minivan driving around town. And yesterday she said one of the better compliments to me. She said, I'm going to go on my Facebook status and say, I, Sherry Felicia is amazed at how quiet Tony is in the back. And I responded by saying, I'm going to go on my Facebook and say, Tony has learned how not to look straight forward when he's driving anymore. <laughs> so we've had some really good discussions about our interrelationship and these things and how these things work. And I praise God, though, that uh, I hopefully I'm coming to end. I appreciate your prayers. They, I, I will start therapy this week, and I'm hoping I'll be able to you know, stand soon enough for a whole service. I don't know how long that'll be after. I'm hoping soon, but that's what I always hope. So we'll see what the doctor says and... Uh, I don't really like sitting in the seat. I mean, it feels a little awkward. I want to come out of the seat a little bit sometimes and talk to you, but this is what God has given, and so I'm happy to be able to share with you, and I want to continue in our series on Advent, and it's a great time for this to be like this that I'm sitting because these topics in some ways are more meditations that I'm sharing with you. We have so many wonderful things that happen during the Advent season, different readings of the Word of God, so we have great exposure to His Word, and I want to give you uh, continued meditations to think about five of them total for, throughout the season. We're to the third week now. Uh, Advent's a very special time for many people, and I think it goes without saying, if you understand a bit of our history, we're in the Reformed uh, Presbyterian history, we actually have a history that does not like Advent. Uh, we were bah humbuggers for a long time. In fact, lots of people uh, still think it's not, you shouldn't celebrate Christmas and Advent. Now, I think we should understand what they mean, because it is well meant. In the time of the Puritans, when they really ceased to to observe Evan and, and, and Christmas was because the church of that day had made them holy days. I want to be clear. We don't think Christmas is a holy day. We think it's a season where the church has used a particular focus time, beginning of the year and so forth, to think about Christ and his coming. And we like that. That, that makes good sense to us. And we join in that. But there is only one day God sets apart. It's his day, the Sabbath day, the day we're here for primarily. Uh, we just are using this time in the normal aspect of our church's life and worship to accent his coming just say like any series i would employ or whatever so it's it has to be understood those folks were dealing with some serious gross idolatry and they're told to do certain things and obey certain holidays and feasts we're not doing that we're just enjoying a chance to recalibrate about god's redemption and how he sent jesus and there's no apologies for that but it's good to explain it and understand it and know it's a, it's a special time for people in the culture even people who don't know christ recognize different things happen at this time of the year So of all people, we should pause and think about what it really ought to mean, what it's really about. So we spent our first week talking about pondering what it means that Christ would send his son 
in the macro sense and also personally. But then we uh, looked at the passage last week about the, the praise that was evoked when the shepherds had seen what they had seen and heard what they had heard, and they returned glorifying God, and they praised him. And that's really a theme throughout Scripture, a, an act of God called to praise us, and certainly God coming in the flesh is such an occasion. We'll also consider in the week to come, it's a time this season to, to plan, to plan with God's priorities in mind. It's a good opportunity for us to do this as we consider the coming of Jesus. It changes everything, including our priorities and our planning. And then a more brief meditation Christmas Eve will be that the natural outflow of this message we have and have come to embrace and understand is to share it, to live it, to proclaim it. Now, today is one of the more unusual titles you probably have noticed, but I had to find a P word, so that was part of it. But also it's true. Advent's a time to party. Now, I don't mean the modern sense of party that's come to mean this kind of drunken sin fest. That's not what I mean. Parting, though, is wholly biblical. Celebrating is all throughout the scripture. God even commands it at times, and we see wonderful examples of it. You see clearly what the wrong kind of partying is and the right kind of partying is. And that's what we want to talk about and reflect, because undeniably, you're all going to a lot of Christmas parties, Christmas gatherings, your workplace is having a Christmas party, your school, whatever it is, your neighborhood maybe. And for the Christian, I think it's a great opportunity to just again pause and grasp what this means and how it has had impact on culture and how we personally can celebrate the coming of Christ and even influence others to think in those terms without being obnoxious about it. But instead of reviling some of those opportunities, think of them as as possibilities for shedding the light of Christ and even for your own life to have a touch more devotion about what he has done and let loose a little bit in praising God and enjoying what he's given us. So that's what we want to talk about. Now, I have a verse that is different from what you may have heard during Advent, but please hear God's word because I think it speaks to this very issue of Advent being a time to party. Luke, 1, or Luke 15, 20 through 32 there before you on the handout. This is after the prodigal son who had wasted his father's inheritance on, on the wrong kind of partying and living. Now he was reduced to nothing. His eyes are enlightened. He comes back to his father. And look, look at how, what happens as a result of his return, as a, a result of his being found. Verse 20 to 32. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and you and never, I had never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, he was devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. 
Let's pray. Father, there is certainly much for us to celebrate as we contemplate your sending Jesus to provide the forgiveness we need for our sins. You have given us relationships with people so we might join in praising you in all we do. You have given us fellowship in Christ so we may be real with each other and experience brotherhood with other redeemed sinners. Make us to be a joyful people based on our joint appreciation for the salvation that you have given us. All of us, unworthy sinners, saved by grace, help us to celebrate the fact of your redemption that you have provided for us in ways that honor you and build up our relationship with one another. Bring glory to yourself as we spend time celebrating the birth of Christ this Advent season. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Studying or observing Christmas in our culture should frustrate many Christians and probably at least confuse most Christians. It's a total mis-message. Merry Christmas, meaning happy Christmas, or this time of celebration, and we use the word Christmas, and you, the Christian, know Christ is in the root of the word. How can people not get this? It confuses us, and it frustrates us that there's such a widespread use of the name of Christ, yet so little comprehension about what it really means. Even hardened atheists and irreligious people participate in one form or another the various kinds of Christmas customs we have, their office party or even in their families or in their neighborhoods. They participate in party even though they have no acknowledgement of what the root cause for this observation is. Just survey the various songs that are called secular Christmas songs, which is a total misnomer on its own, which frustrates in itself that you could call something a secular Christmas song. But they're all out there and they're popular every year and you hear them on the radio. But one of the first ones that you are probably familiar with from the Chipmunks. The Chipmunks in the late 50s. Now, it was the late 50s when the Chipmunks captured the meaning of Christmas. This isn't a 2010 advent for those who like to say it was better back in the 50s. In the late 50s, this is what the Chipmunks told us. Christmas, Christmas time is near. Time for toys and time for cheer. We've been good, but we can't last. Hurry, Christmas. Hurry fast. Want a plane that loops the loop. Me, I want a hula hoop. Now, things have come a long way since those two toys. We can hardly stand the wait. Please, Christmas, don't be late. Yes, Christmas, it's about getting stuff, of course. Uh, really, this is what Christmas has come to in so many ways. And I think one of the advantages of, of observing some special components of the Advent season is that it guards us from secularizing Christmas too much because we gear up for the fact that we do want to celebrate the birth of Christ and what it means. But before we get there, let's really pause about what God did to get to that point. And hopefully to some degree that helps us see how sacred that event is. It takes eyes off of self and puts it where it belongs. But yes, Christmas for much of the population is about getting stuff, giving stuff, parties, gift giving, relatives, time off work, we say Merry Christmas. Merry, that's, that's happy, that's celebratory. Happy Christmas. None of these things, by the way, I think you will agree, are in themselves bad, not any of them. But how much better would it be, Christians, if we would recognize why we can be merry, why we can be happy, and then apply that to all these opportunities we have over almost a month's time? I think one perspective about Advent that might help us in our thoughts about God and his gift of Christ is God's view of celebration just in general. I think for the most part, Christians are viewed, and rightfully so, as exceedingly boring. Like, who wants to hang out with those people? They're dead. Or they just stare at each other and look forward at each other. And you know what? There's truth to that. You've got to admit, we can be boring. 
But if we study God's view of celebration, I hope that it would recalibrate our thinking in our lives even to consider the right place for just partying. How we could do this in a right way that honors God. And in fact, mirrors what the prodigal son's father said. Because in verse 32, I think it's maybe not a passage we focus on that much in that story. The story is, of course, about this man who is lost and is found, but it's also about this older brother, kind of symbolic of the church, who looks at someone like that and says, hey, I've been sitting in this pew all the time and I didn't get anything. And it brings us all back to the fact that none of us deserve to get anything. And so that story is about this, but please notice that when one comes to faith or when we are saved, when we are redeemed, when we are bought, when we are now through with being lost and are found, this is a reason to celebrate. And notice what the father says in verse 32. It was fitting, he says, to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the right reason to have a party. Son, is what he's saying. An advent is a fitting occasion to celebrate and be glad. We, are, we were lost, but we are found by the one who came to find us. And he did. The Bible depicts all kinds of celebrating. I want you just to think of some of these examples I give you. And the words that are used, by the way, in the Bible for partying are multiple. There's celebrate is probably the most popular. Feasts are usually connected with a liturgical meaning like the Passover, but then they have this widespread feast around it. And that's a party. Together they're eating and they're drinking and they're married. They're, merry. they're happy together. And, and they're not sitting together with, with their concordances and their commentaries and going over the confession. Okay, that's important. Churches should do it. But partying means just have fun with each other. Talk about what's going on in life. What hobbies you have. Things you like to do. People you know. And how you consider all of this a gift from God. I mean, that's okay. That's what they did. They didn't just sit around the whole time and examine doctrinal ins and outs. They had fun with each other. Merriment. The word merriment is used often. It's even used descriptively of what they were doing when the prodigal sons came home and his party ensued. There's an example in the Old Testament. I won't ask you to turn to these because there are several. I just want to highlight them uh, because there are are multiple examples of celebrations like this in Scripture. One that is intriguing, though, is when Joseph, uh, Joseph, you know the story, hopefully, where he has been sold into slavery and years later he finds himself as the, the number one in command over Egypt. He is given visions by God so he knows to store up food because a famine will happen. His brothers who sold him into slavery show up begging Egypt for food and he happens to be the guy that they're begging. They don't know it's him. He's dressed in Egyptian gear. He looks older. And so he knows it's them and he's waiting because he knows his life has been robbed from him, at least as far as his family's concerned. Things God worked together for him, but he's lost his family over this evil act of his brothers. And so they come and he says to him, you know what? I don't want to talk to you until you bring your youngest brother. And the reason is he wanted to see Benjamin who he had not yet seen. He was born when he was in slavery. And so they're scared and Jacob's scared because this is the last of his sons. They're going to lose them all now. I've already lost Joseph. My other sons are going to Egypt. Now they want my youngest. So when Benjamin gets there, Joseph's response when he sees Benjamin is to cry and weep and grab him and hug him. He even re- runs out of the room. He has to hide his emotions because he's so pumped to see his son, his uh, brother who he had not yet met. And then he has, throws a party. And they, they spend a long time partying after they meet. It says in Genesis 43:33, and they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and they were merry with him. Just one picture of a party that happened. There's a famous party also that happened after the Israelites defeated the Philistines. And as is the case with many of these parties, 
They go well for some and not so well for others. In this case, they had just defeated the Philistines, and David was a key warrior in this battle that God had given them victory concerning. And 1 Samuel 18 says, And they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy, musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David is ten thousand. Saul did have a good party. But the rest understood what God had done. At least most did. There's always someone who gets it wrong. That God's given them victory, and they've used David to do this. God's moving in their midst to bring leadership. You know, when David finally brought the Ark of the Covenant into its rightful place, there was a party thrown that, that would have been compared. The New Year's Eve party at Times Square is nothing. It would have been like a birthday party at McDonald's compared to what happens here when the Ark arrives. In 2 Samuel 6, and they carried the ark of God on the new cart and brought it out of the house of Abimadad, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Hio, the, king of, uh, the sons of Abimadad, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Hio went before the ark, and David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. There was a party that surrounded the bringing of God's ark to its right place. And even the book of Ecclesiastes, which largely is about vanity and about the foolishness of considering uh, all the pursuits we, we pursue after in this short life, it says, even though in this short life, it says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Now, the whole of Ecclesiastes is a warning against making that your life. But at the same time, it's saying that this is part of life given to us by God. You know, even at the worst time in the history of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, I mean the worst time when Israel was being plundered and taken captive by Babylon, you have this uh, Persia first and then into Babylon, you have this vision that Jeremiah has, and he doesn't have many good visions about their future, but in 31, chapter 31 of Jeremiah, he does. And he describes it in an interesting way, looking ahead to the Messiah who would come, be their ultimate king, and restore to them their rightful place, but their place by faith in him, the Messiah. Looking ahead, talking of a new covenant, Jeremiah says, Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you, and, I, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and go forth in the dance of the merrymakers looking forward to a day where they would celebrate again. They would have a party again based on God's redemption. And probably the most prominent picture of celebrating in the whole of the Old Testament that repeats itself over and over is the command to celebrate the Passover feast. It it was surely a reminder to celebrate the ritual aspect of the Passover lamb slaying and the drinking and the eating of the bread and, and what it all means and what it all pictures. No doubt that meaning is there intact. But surrounding it, God commands his people to celebrate the Passover. It wasn't just the ritual, it was the whole of the meal and the experience that occurred. In fact, God gives us the Passover meal in its fulfilled form, meaning the the table of communion representing the body and the blood of Christ that we partake of every week. But part of what makes it so effective in our lives is God gives it to the church. And so when we celebrate it, we celebrate communion with God, understanding our communion now with each other. Just as Pastor Nathan mentioned in the liturgy, it's part a picture of life. We meet God in his holiness and now we're reduced to the fact that we need God's 
righteousness. We can't have peace with him without it. He gives us Christ, so we pass peace with each other. Similarly, we have peace with each other. Communion means that much more because we're partaking of this meal together as a community. The New Testament, right away, the very first act of Jesus' public ministry happens where? In a party. A wedding reception, to be exact. It says in John chapter 2, On the third day there was a wedding in Canaan and Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And you know how the story goes. He doesn't say, Man, this is a lame party. He doesn't say, oh, they shouldn't be drinking wine. He performs a miracle. It makes the best wine that you could possibly imagine. The kind of wine they'd never give this big of a group, let alone save it to the last. Surely just his being there tells us that partying is part of what God gives to man. But it's based on a reason. You see, there's a reason we can party, a reason we can celebrate, and it's always based on the redemptive work of God in our lives. It doesn't mean that every aspect of the particular party you're part of is constantly rehearsing that, but you know in your being that the reason you can have fellowship with others, celebrate anything, enjoy what God has made, is because he has given you new eyes. He's breathed life into you. You see things different now. And what you do can now be claimed for the praise of God. Indeed, we're being prepared for a great party, the greatest party ever. In Revelation 19, 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the, wor- the true words of God. And I fell down at his feet and worshipped him. For he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. We get a picture of right worship and wrong worship. The wrong kind of celebrating happens with the wrong focus. And scripture shows this in example form many times. But you could just imagine, if the party is about glorifying man, I don't mean a birthday party. I mean a birthday party, if we're celebrating the fact that God has given us our brother, our sister, our child, those things are done well. I just mean when we throw a party for everyone to know how great we are. Or that may not be the reason, but you're determined that that's what's going to be shown. Or we're going to glorify whatever our indulgence may be. Whatever we sinfully feel like we can do, because there's license for it in a party. Well, that's not God's party. That's not what he's calling us to do. That's not what he's telling us to do. He's always saying, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do to the glory of God. He's always saying, with this in the backdrop, that we should praise God by whatever celebration we have. And it could be all manners of celebrations. Always know in the back of your mind as you celebrate, it's God who gives grace for this occasion. When someone graduates, praise God he's given them the ability to persevere and do this. When they retire, praise God that they've given them this work life they've had. And pray that God will continue to use them after. When you have a birthday party, praise God for the way you have been able to share in that person's life and they in yours. Praise God. That's the point. And so what you do then will be tied to why you do it. And then what you do won't call, be called into question so much because you'll do what's right as it relates to the kind of celebration. But you won't be a dud. You won't not celebrate because someone else doesn't do it right. We celebrate of all people because we know why we should. And this is what he tells us to do. Certainly at Advent, 
when we have these parties, we have these times together, there are simply multiple, or there, there are multiple ways in which we see it done wrong. Think about uh, how some parties, this would be a good sermon series, parties gone bad in the Bible. And one of them was definitely, you know, when, Esther, when, uh, when the king with Vashti, his wife, this long party, things were not going well. They were getting drunk and they were doing things they should not have done. And he decides he's going to going to abuse his wife in, in, a, in an embarrassing way in front of the guests. And she says, forget it. And they end up divorced and just one of many probably wrecked marriages in his life. And this is how the, uh, the book of Esther comes to pass. That's a bad party. But there's another one you can think of too. How about John the Baptist when Herod, in a similar way, mistreats his daughter-in-law and then makes a rash promise in the midst of this party with all these people yeah, with all that was involved in it and promises made in front of people you want to impress. I mean, all the wrong reasons to have a party and to, to conduct yourself. And then she says in front of all of them, after he promises to give her anything, I want the head of John the Baptist. And he has no choice at this point in his thinking but to do it. Okay, those are wrong parties. It's not like you'll know it, okay, if it's not a right party or if there's not something right to do at it. You shouldn't be at that one. The wrong kind of celebration happens when it's meant to worship self. There's no use of moderation or consideration in that celebration. Bad things happen in such celebrations. But the right kind of celebrating happens on worthy occasions in the right way. And I think this is some of what's in Paul's mind as he's talking to people who were steeped in all these various Greek and Roman cultural practices of feasts and meals and things to observe. And he's talking to people who are struggling with it. Some people have this conviction. Some have others. Much like our own tradition has. Some don't think you should celebrate Advent or Christmas or think about it. And some think, what's the problem with this? Like we do, we explain why. And others don't even think about it. They just do. Understanding this issue that happens between people, Paul says in Romans 14, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Whatever you do, do it because your motive is it's in honor of the Lord. So celebrate in honor of the Lord whatever party it is you're at, whatever celebration you're having, whatever merriment we get to enjoy. Do it in honor of the Lord. The various celebrations we considered were on worthy occasions mostly in response to some gracious action of God and the way he handled things and had music, song, praise, food and drink. I want to close by talking about the reason we celebrate at this time and why it's good to do so. First of all, the coming of Christ is certainly a reason to celebrate. It means we'll be redeemed. We have been redeemed because we know the whole story, but it begins redemption with his coming, or at least it fulfills the plan of God's redemption from time past and brings it into time and space. So remember why the celebration is made possible. That will help you. Remember why you have the ability to be there at that time in that place with those people celebrating this thing. When you say Merry Christmas, you can at least stop to think of what it really means. No, seriously, joyful Christmas. Reconcile Christmas. I am right with God because of Christmas, because of him coming, because of Jesus' coming to take away my sins. And so even if, and think about it for yourself, but also think about it, the person's hand you're shaking when you say Merry Christmas. Maybe it's that uncle who does not know Christ. You've been having these gatherings for 14 years, and every year you hear updates about how bad his life is going. Well, maybe this time, instead of avoiding him, shake his hand and hold it for a minute. When you say it, pray for him that he knows, comes to know Christ. So he really knows what Christmas means. 
Instead of dreading all those gatherings with people that don't see things like you do, go to them and think in terms of Christ opening their eyes. There's opportunity for it. The word of God is prevalent in the songs we sing. And if we believe the Holy Spirit can take the word of God and open the eyes of a blind person, this is one of the most opportune times we have. But also, beyond what may be evangelistically possible, if you will, just enjoy people. Like hanging with each other. Enjoy your home fellowship group white elephant gift. I walk into church and John Cameron's got this tie playing a ridiculous song. I got it at the white elephant gift last night. That's cool. I mean, it's not cool the tie isn't, but it was cool that you got that and you think it's okay to wear to church. I mean, like hanging with each other, the fellow redeemed, fellow sinners who are redeemed. I mean, just enjoy times together, celebrate, and always know you can celebrate and have this, this relationship because of what's been provided eternally for you. Our relationship with each other as believers is not superficial. We, we make it that way. We sometimes strive for that, but that's not true. It's supremely real and spiritual. And real and spiritual are real. So celebrate those relationships Enjoy fellowship with each other when you have those occasions to party, to celebrate, to be together. Don't neglect to cherish the people God has given you right when they're in your house. Uh, I could say to many of you, and you know it, who've lost opportunity to hug that person the last time or shake their hand the last time. Well, right now, whoever you got, hug them. I mean, not now, but like, would you get a chance? Hug them and say Merry Christmas in a way that's different than before because no one's guaranteed the next day. And also, I'd say finally, in addition to this, remembering this, why the celebration is, is possible and also just enjoy each other and the fellowship we have with each other as fellow believers. And even people who are not believers, by the way, enjoy time with them that God's given you some chance, some opportunity to be in their life and to possibly shed the light of the gospel in some way in their life, to be interested in them, to bring them to your mind. But also enjoy the food and drink that God has provided. Paul said it well. Follow this rule. Whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Enjoy the good things that God has created in moderation and with control. So drink your eggnog. I mean, go easy on the additives, but drink your eggnog. Eat your little smokies. Exchange cookies to the glory of God. Eat those awesome peanut butter balls with the chocolate on them and crunch when you eat them. You know, just don't eat too many and just recognize it's a gift of God. He's given you these good things. See them as points of celebration. They weren't things that were done every day. They were special. And reason for specialness, again, is honoring God. Feast in a way that gives honor to the one who has saved us from our sins. I would say in conjunction with this, how about all of us secretly, maybe uh, next year or some other time, talk about within ourselves, what if we all gave up one year of giving each other gifts inside of our family and gave it to some other family? or some other worthy ministry that we know of that reaches out to people that have a hard time in life right now. I mean, how many of you, when the wind was howling last night, thought, thought to yourself, and I think a lot of you probably did, as I did, man, I am so fortunate I'm in these walls, and this furnace down there is kicking, because there are people that are not in that state. What if we gave up some of our own stuff that are all additives anyways and just give to somebody else some some year i know that's tough for for kids to think of it's tough for adults to think of i like getting stuff but it would help us untwist some of the twistedness of the way we focus on this time of the year it's not something i'm imposing on you but challenge you to think about as it relates to some of the ways in which we can celebrate christmas i want to go back with the story i started with to close back at luke 15 there's this huge party 
throne for a guy who spent a huge portion of his father's estate. I mean, if I'm his dad, I'm so mad at him. I mean, I don't, maybe I got an inheritance. Maybe I made my, my bread myself and built up this place and I gave it to him and he, he burned it all. And he comes back. And the response of the father is like God is when he sees us come to him. Yes, we have offended him supremely. But he's so overjoyed with our return, with our being found. And look at this and see it and sense it and apply it to our situation now. In verse 20, he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. His father didn't say, it isn't that worthless. No, he saw it and he didn't care that a nobleman shouldn't tuck up his, his tunic and put it in his belt and run a long way. He just went because he wanted to see this one who was lost and seemed to be coming back. He said, Father, I've sinned against heaven before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The son got it. He, he came to his senses by God's grace and he came to his father. That's why we celebrate because we all were out of our senses and God saves us. We come to our senses. Go to your father then. And this is what he does when you go to him. He doesn't say a word. He grabs him and says to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on. Put a ring for his hand, shoes on his feet. He didn't have shoes. He was a filthy mess. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. This calf that could have brought them a lot of money. It's fattened and ready to sell, but we're going to kill it now because this is a party. It's time for a party. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Twice celebrate now is reference. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard his mu- the music and dancing. Now here's the dud. Here's the church in many cases. The older son. I hate it, the older son is saying. When this guy, who doesn't deserve it, gets the party and I deserve it and get no party. Part of the reason why we're such duds as Christians is because we think that they should not be having fun out there. I mean, that's not cool. That they have fun and we don't. It should be serious. We should stop and consider our duties and celebrate our obedience and be stiff when we do it. And all the while we get away over this time of comparing the world to us and all the fun we think they're having and forget that we are the ones of all people that can actually celebrate because we're recognizing on a regular basis that the picture of our salvation is just like it is here, that we are not worthy, that we did burn out what God gave to us, yet our return that is by his grace on its own is met with a response of celebration and focus on what has been gained back from what was lost and how the Father has done this thing and not at all on what he has done. And that gives anyone who really contemplates it a true sense of what we ought to celebrate. When you're walking around bumping each other, say, man, can you believe we're here? It's amazing. We shouldn't be, but we are. That's the picture that the brother gives for us or the son who is lost. And we see in verse 28, this other brother was angry. He didn't like the fact they were throwing a party for him. I've been here with you all this time. I haven't messed up and look what you've done. He's totally lost the fact that every one of us has messed up. None of us deserve it. The son of yours come to devour your property. You don't even kill, you don't even kill a little goat for me. Did you give him the fattened calf? Listen to his tone. And the father says, son, you're always with me. All that I have is yours. You've never gone through all this stuff. You should be thankful that you haven't gone through the, the mire as he has. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Of course, it's a time to celebrate. 
course it is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are tempted year after year to fall into the trap of celebrating the wrong things at Advent and Christmas time. Maybe the whole season has become a drag for us. Help us to refocus this morning and consider the great reason we have to celebrate. Help us in our planned gatherings with family and friends to lead in praising God for the occasion that brings us together. Help us to be bold to proclaim the great meaning of Advent and Christmas. Help us to truly and richly enjoy the fellowship we have with each other because of Christ, freeing us from the bonds of captivity. Help us not to let our times together with friends and family go by without acknowledgement and appreciation for Christ, who gives meaning to life and eternity. Help us to see our times of partying this time of year in the proper light. We were lost, but we are now found. Let us say similarly to the father of the prodigal, it was fitting, it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For we were dead and now are alive. We were lost and now are found. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.